Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI, its management, or the University of California Board of Regents. Welcome to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Today, my guests are Jim McLear, Director of Orange County Chapter of Alzheimer's Association. The association is in full swing with services, fundraising events like a bunch of walks, and a large locally hosted symposium that posts the public as well as the general, um, as well as practitioners and um, scientists on the latest science. My second guest is Karen Caparasso, a financial consultant advisor who gets young women starting to think about strong financial footing and helps other older women in difficult transitions regain or reestablish their footing. We'll be right back in a moment. Today, I would like to dedicate this show in recognition of Liz Ayers, a phenomenally gifted support group leader for adult children of Alzheimer's disease patients. I met Liz 17 years ago when I needed to turn to someone who knew what the twisted, cruel process of the progression of Alzheimer's disease was all about. She firmly and graciously advocated for the AD patient, all right, and in the process led many of us out of cluelessness and into something that was humane, if not more manageable. Our debt of gratitude to Liz Ayers, who took her 26 years of experience of caregiving for her father and gave us an insightful framework from which to work. My first guest on the program today is Jim McLear. Since his 2004 appointment, he's been a president and chief executive officer of the Alzheimer's Association uh, of Orange County in Southern California. While national statistics estimate that one in six baby boomers currently die from Alzheimer's um, by the age of 65, statistics in Orange County are closer to one in four. He, uh, Jim McAleer also serves as an Orange County Board of Supervisors appointed Board of Directors member for Cal Optima. Jim is always out addressing corporations, all aspects of the disease, um, and including the latest research and local resources available to, to those in need. And he's your, he's our guest today, uh, my good listener. So welcome to the show, Jim McAleer. Thank you so much, Claudia. I'm so glad that you're with us today. Let's Let's first talk about the plethora of services that the Alzheimer's Association of OC provides. I believe it's some 26 monthly community support group meetings, nine specialized group meetings, other meetings at care facilities throughout the county. You've been responsible for initiating 16 new patient support education community outreach programs. Do you want to tell us about some of your favorites? Some well, of the newer. It certainly sounds like you know as much or more than I do. That's oh, wonderful. I'm trying to learn. 
<laughs> we have 47 community support groups of different types. Uh, they specialize in some cases for people who, for example, um, favor the Vietnamese language or who speak Spanish. Uh, we also have support groups that specialize in certain types of dementia. I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit this, later. Yes. But not every dementia is an Alzheimer's dementia. So we have a frontal, temporal, and Lewy body support group in concert with uh, UCI's Mind Institute. We have education and outreach programs that last year taught 15,000 Orange County professionals how to better care for the people that we love who experience dementia. I want As to take stock. That's really our phenomenal. Small, little mighty chapter was the top in the nation of all the chapters in offering education and outreach. Well, and I that's a question I was going to bring up near the end, but since you bring it up, when you're talking about a national outreach, that is to say that this Orange County chapter does not simply serve those residing in Orange County. A person from, let's say, Michigan with a parent in Orange County or Michigan with a parent in uh, in uh, southern Washington, they can come to this association for resources, can they not? And you do do the, serve them. Absolutely. I mean, that's the beautiful thing of a national network. We're a standalone, independent organization that, that covers Orange County. But because of our affiliation with our National Alzheimer's Association, we have brother and sister chapters all throughout this country, everywhere from close situations like Los Angeles and San Diego chapters. I've done interventions with Atlanta, with New York. So if a loved one is living in Georgia, for example, and you're trying to provide for their care from here, we'll probably try and support you here while connecting you with that chapter to look for local resources. For example, places where that person might eventually reside, a good doctor locally. And here you might come for your support group. Again, that's kind of the beauty of having 70 chapters across the nation, all designed to support people with any kind of dementia. And we'll bring up the, the website, um, you know, once or twice, folks. Um, it is www.alz.org forward slash OC. And um, it, it, it is a sort of a whole gateway onto an amazing array of services, as we've already alluded to. And so you've, I think that's more recent, that you've accommodated uh, non-English speaking groups, as you said, and some other slightly different uh, types of uh, cognitive impairment um, in this field. Um, I wanted you to, um, you've been credited also with increasing service penetration. Can you tell us what that means when we look into what you've been up to? Absolutely. Um, I will say that, that uh, whatever credit I've uh, have given, it completely is due to the volunteers and staff that manage our work, including, including people like the amazing Lazares. It takes absolute village to provide support to the 75,000 people in Orange County alone who experience dementia. They may not know they experienced it, but by statistics, we know that that many people exist here. So for penetration, what we're talking about is seven years ago, we believe that we were serving roughly 16 to 17% of the affected population in Orange County in some fashion. Now, we believe that we're serving somewhere around 26% of the affected population. As you can imagine, the population is growing. The numbers will double by 2030. So our penetration, we have to serve increasingly more people just to stay even with the penetration we're, we're uh, achieving, much less get ahead of it. So we're trying to expand our outreach and the awareness of the community about ALZ.org um, and our, and our helpline. Those are amazingly important tools for the general community to know that we exist and to help us reach even more people who have this disease. 
And that is another item. We do have the helpline number available. It's uh, open 24-7, folks. It's one. It's 800-272-3900. I'll keep that also in the podcast summary for those to refer to later. Um, you not only provide uh, uh, practical assistance and emotional support, there's also, uh, and I can speak from personal experience, there on the other side of the progression of this disease, there is grief support. They, I don't even know that I made a call, Jim, and I got uh, someone uh, calling me about the, the sort of the aftermath of the, the actual death that occurred uh, with my mother's Alzheimer's. So um, the grief support is another amazing contribution the Alzheimer's Association is responsible for. I hope so. When you think that last year alone, 11,000 people called our helpline, just in Orange County, 11,000 people needed that help. You can imagine that with the devastating impact of this disease, many of those people have just since the start of last year lost the person that they loved, or perhaps they even called the helpline after that person had already passed. We have people at all different levels of clinical expertise, everything from our folks who answer the helpline who have a great deal of knowledge to masters of social work who can provide varying levels of support for the individual and their family, both in the disease process and after. When you think about that helpline, a lot of times what people really need is someone to listen, is someone to hear and validate their story and their experience. Certainly they need the referral to a competent doctor. They need a referral for a facility for their loved one um, to reside when they're no longer safe at home. They need to know about safe return, the bracelet program for 70% of our folks wander at some point this low-tech bracelet program can keep them safe. They learn about all those things through the helpline, but honestly, they've got, a, they've got a caring, loving voice responding to their needs 24 hours a day, 2 in the morning, pick up the phone and call. And I can vouch for that uh, the authenticity of that caring voice, that caring, loving voice. It's invariably someone whose uh, loved one had succumbed to Alzheimer's, and they, they know so much about it. They want so much to make something good come from the trials and tribulations of that disease's progression that they're, 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 it's an uncommonly profound service that they render after having survived an Alzheimer's case. I think that's very true. Our, our staff here at the association, I'm exceptionally proud to lead an, ama lead an amazing team, but most of us have been touched by this disease. Both of my grandmothers passed, one of dementia, one of Alzheimer's dementia, and I watched my mother crumble under providing care for those wonderful women without the support of an association at that time. So uh, most of my team has those kinds of stories, uh, an aunt, uh, a parent, a grandparent, or a neighbor that they held, supported, and loved while they went through this process. So when they answer the phone, they answer it with a genuine heart. Deeply, deeply. Well, um, the, the, you're, you've already alluded to uh, some of this before, I guess, we go into uh, making distinctions between these different kinds of impairments and all. Um, I want to remind uh, those of you who just uh, been joining us, my guest is Jim McAleer, president and CEO of the Orange County chapter of the Alzheimer's Association here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. So the general public is still coming to terms with differences, Jim, in mild cognitive impairment, various types of dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. As you track the scientific developments, what can you tell us about the markers that we should be aware of when our loved ones appear to be in some kind of cognitive decline? Absolutely. 
it's, it's certainly a complex question that many people are grappling with. As, as baby boomers age, the first one turned 65 this year. There are 9 million in California. It's an increasing concern and problem. Let's start with mild cognitive impairment. That impairment, which might cause your memory to be somewhat impaired, a decline from what you're used to. One of the things we look for is change over time. Frankly, Claudia, if you forgot your keys at 21 every day and you're still forgetting your keys, that's probably not mild cognitive impairment or dementia. You're forgetful. If it's changed over time, then that's something that might be a concern and something to see your physician. So mild cognitive impairment is that milder form that millions of Americans face that may or may not become eventually some form of dementia. Science hasn't really proven that it might. We know with some certainty that a majority of people with MCI probably do convert to some form of dementia if they live long enough. The forms of dementia are different. So think of dementia, the term dementia, as an umbrella term. It's like the overarching term that means some neurological, some brain condition that impairs your ability to function. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia. Science goes back and forth on what percentage of dementias or Alzheimer's dementia, but I think we're safe somewhere around the 70 percentile. Well, we can't we can't know whether it's Alzheimer's invariably until, I mean, at this rate uh, with science, until there's actually an autopsy done, right? We can only be, what was it, 85 percent sure that it's an, even an Alzheimer's case before um, before an autopsy, can we? You know, what's interesting is that's changing. That's absolutely been very true in this year at the International Conference on Alzheimer's Disease, now called the Alzheimer's Association Conference on Alzheimer's Disease, 5,000 scientists were there talking about largely diagnosis and prevention. One of the things they're saying about diagnosis, new diagnostic criteria have been released this year with an international panel that are allowing us to more accurately diagnose this disease prior to death. While they are not in regular clinical use, they mirror that which a clinician in the field is using today. Clinicians today can tell with reasonable certainty whether a person has a dementia. To differentiate with Alzheimer's dementia is a great specialty. Those folks do exist. For example, the UCI Mind Institute has some wonderful clinicians that can differentiate between Lewy body, frontal temporal, pugilistic dementia. Boxers get it from being hit in the head so often. And football players. The NFL actually has a fund just for dementia because it's so prevalent for retired football players. So diagnosticians now, a good clinical specialist, can tell with reasonable certainty whether a person has one dementia and two Alzheimer's dementia. Um, They use a combination of PET or SPECT scans, basically brain imaging technology that using new dyes that attach to the plaques we think are there in Alzheimer's, they can tell how many plaques are there, how many tangles are there. Then they do neuropsychological testing, pen and paper tests, memory recall tests, and they compare you against the norm for your age. I've actually had the test, and at 45, I was worried because I couldn't remember the list that they were giving me. Oh, they make us sweat those tests. Don't they? Don't they? But they were comparing me against other men who were 45 who had my educational level. So when compared against those men, fortunately, I don't appear to have memory loss at the moment. Okay. So um, that was that's generally, and and there's also with uh, other uh, brain uh, degeneration, um, like with uh, Parkinson's, it's also not quite clear whether there what kind of dementia, if it's an Alzheimer's type dementia or other dementia, also impairing the Parkinson's patient. So it's a it is a great deal of um, there's a great deal going on in terms of that degeneration. Absolutely, and sometimes they can be treated differently. Increasingly, we're coming to discover 
that often it's not one form of dementia. The second most common form of dementia is vascular dementia. Yes. Uh, dementia basically caused by some impairment to your circulatory system. So those well, many strokes. about it, if the circulatory system is impaired, your body's probably not flushing out some of the protein chain plaques that are forming on the outside of the brain in Alzheimer's. So it's possible to see both of those forms of dementia together. To differentiate between those can be exceptionally complex if it's ever done. The reality is the treatment of many of the dementias is quite similar. Oh, well, very good. And I wanted, you mentioned earlier about uh, where various markers appear and how um, loved ones can uh, seek out the proper help. Are you getting an understanding, let's say, in our region, are primary care physicians getting better at recognizing those markers and referring patients to neurologists who can take up the treatment and the necessary follow-up? I think somewhat. Uh, certainly not enough for my preference and the preference of our association. We actually, for the first time in, in many years due to the economy, we've added a new staff person whose sole job is outreach to practicing physicians in the field. Doctors have a tremendous amount to stay on top of as a general practicing physician. That's true. Yes. So dementia diagnosis may or may not be one of them. Part of what we believe, the earlier you can catch the signs of significant memory loss, the more impactful the treatments and therapies are. It appears that even the drugs that we give, Aricept, an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, uh, there are several others, Exelon, Razidine, uh, also Nemenda, are have shown to be more um, effective when given earlier in the course of this disease. So if we can teach clinicians how to get people to uh, specialists quicker, those interventions can be more effective, but also they can participate in things that associations like ours offer while they're still able to make decisions. And also we know that by staying more physically active, staying more socially active, more mentally active, it will slow the progression of the disease. So engaging those folks in the things that can help them as early as possible is key. No, I don't think the generally practicing physicians are there yet. I think that certainly there's been some inroads. I think the general public is becoming increasingly aware. It's more in the media. It's more in the news. There are more ads. It's, it's more often a, a theme in a television show. So people are more likely to go look for, hey, what should I worry about? We have a thing called the 10 warning signs. You'll find it on our website, alz.org. And the 10 warning signs tell you some of the things you might look for to say, hmm, maybe I have a problem I should go see my doctor about. One of them, for example, is if you've seen a change in your mood over a regular period of time, depression can be a sign of an issue. And there are quite a few others. Indeed, indeed. Um, oh, boy, where to go from all these places? Um, <laughs> it's a complex problem. Families, when they grapple with it and first learn that perhaps their loved one has memory loss, one of the things that we do as they come into our doors is we try to sort out what some of the complex options might be for this family. So a spouse, for example, brings in their loved one, uh, perhaps a partner of 40, 45, 50 years. Well, part of what we try to do for those folks is help them see what the path might be so that together they can make choices as early as possible about what they might want to see happen while living a full, complete, wonderful life. Well, and that, I understand, that's the double-edged sword of getting information early. Uh, you want to make the most of early intervention, early forestalling of the of symptoms opening up, but it's also some people have difficulty with coming to terms earlier than they thought they had to with that disease processing in their bodies. So that's, Absolutely. it's a dilemma it's a, for them. Well, and, 
and a dilemma often for their families. We see denial permeate both sides of the coin, the person with the disease and their families. If we can increase the amount of scrutiny in both the media and in the public space, when people like the basketball coach or the volunteers in Tennessee comes out and says, I have young onset and I'm still going to work, that encourages people to look at themselves and say, you know what, if she can do it, I can do it. Ronald Reagan uh, coming out as having Alzheimer's was incredibly impactful. But years later, very few other people have followed that lead. Now we're starting to see more and more Glenn Campbells of the world um, make it known that it's a disease and it's nothing shameful. So as we see more people come out earlier, seek help earlier, get that help earlier, hopefully they'll be plugging into services. None of our services, we never charge a family for anything that we do. We sometimes will charge a paid professional for education, but at the most minimal rates we can. But a loved one who's a caregiver or a person with this disease or someone worried, there's never a charge for our helpline, our support groups, our educational programs, or any of our services. And I, I, I'm wanting to pay um, a special stock with that, but before uh, we go into that uh, any more detail, I wanted uh, you mentioned Pat Summit fleetingly as uh, examples of high-profile individuals uh, with uh, bringing their Alzheimer's diagnosis to the public. I mean, she's a very she's the um, the legendary coach of the University of Tennessee Lady Vols, a basketball team that's had a tremendous record. She's only fifty-nine years old. She's got to be the youngest a high-profile um, case of, of, of Alzheimer's. So this is going to be a very interesting process to watch. Increasingly, we've seen the young-onset Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's that sets in before 65. And this is very uh, young, 59. That, 59. 59 is young, but for young-onset, um, I would say it's probably around the average for young-onset, and there are 500,000 people in this country who experience it. So by having Pat um, able to articulate that she does have it, I think we'll see increasingly more people who do experience young onset go get the help that they need so that they can engage in systems earlier. Keep in mind, too, Claudia, that 15% of dementias roughly uh, are caused by things that can be treated, medication interactions, depression, other conditions, for example, uh, a form of hydrocephalus that can be treated and reverse the memory loss. So if nothing else, if a person experiences severe memory loss and gets tested for that, there is a, a decent chance that it's something that can be treated. And when you were talk, speaking of the treatment, you you're referring to Namenda and Aricept earlier. It was earlier uh, on uh, where those medications were effective for upward of two years, but uh, are they being increasing, are they being used for a longer period of time at this point? The average study rate of efficacy for Aricept is usually stated at about 18 months with a declining efficacy after that. However, the earlier in the disease process it's administered, it's believed, although the studies are relatively small pools of people, but it's still pretty commonly believed that the earlier you administer it, the longer its effect lasts. It's also been shown recently, just this past summer, that it's mostly probable that when combined with Namenda, the effects of the d- drug last longer, that they extend longer, and Namenda doesn't break down in efficacy uh, in the same way. So by putting them together, many doctors are choosing that course of treatment. Uh, Namenda is not uh, approved by FDA for early it uh, still stage isn't? disease. My goodness. Uh, it's only approved for moderate stage. Some physicians are choosing to prescribe it off-label in earlier stages, um, but that's completely a choice between a physician and a person with the disease. But, Claudia, one of the things that that brings up 
You have to have a physician who understands the disease, where science is on the medication, where science is on nutraceuticals, vitamins, those sorts of things, so that that competent clinician in dementia can give you some advice on what you should and shouldn't be doing. Right, right. And um, the you were talking about early intervention, and I was, I've been very impressed, but I'm not as up-to-date as I'd like to be about the expansive memory retraining uh, research that's done and the sort of creating a, a link between a motor activity and a cognitive activity and how those two components can provide the necessary traction for an Alzheimer's patient to maintain to manage better with their loss in memory. Is there, what is the latest in uh, memory retraining uh, going on either at the UCI Center of the Mind and, uh, and broader, uh, more broadly in the, the country's research? There, there's a tremendous amount of work being done on a number of fronts for, uh, I'm not sure I would term it retraining, but I think on maintaining or prolonging your mental acuity as long as possible. For example, at UCI Mind, Carl Kottman's work on exercise has shown conclusively that exercise both slows the progression of the disease and delays onset of the disease. So staying fit, not just from a weight perspective, although that's also been proven, um, that uh, having a, not carrying extra weight is a good thing when you're trying to prevent or delay the um, progression of the disease. Carl's work shows that exercise really helps. You're also talking about mental stimulation. There are online programs, things like Posit Science and MindFit and other programs and systems online that are designed to actually keep your memory rolling and moving. They continually shift and change their questions and answers. They're more game-like, but they translate into the real world. We weren't sure they did until uh, this past spring, and studies show that, yeah, it doesn't just teach you how to be better at that game. It can actually take into your world, your ability to button your shirt a little bit longer and some of those basic taskings. The motor skills, mental acuity things, what we're learning, any social interaction, particularly social interaction engaged with physical activity, is a very positive thing in delaying progression and delaying onset. The more fit you are, the longer. The more socially engaged you are, the longer. The more you are educating yourself or challenging your brain, longer, the more likely you are to slow the progression or delay the onset of a disease. And that's where I think people like Pat Summit, the coach uh, at UT, is uh, she in her uh, sustained high application, she's going to have all of those things working for her with her earlier onset of Alzheimer's. Absolutely. Her education will help her. We know that people uh, are less likely to get to the, the disease younger in life, the higher their education level. Not quite so much for a genetic form like young onset, um, that is a genetically linked form. But we do know that the more you educate yourself, stay learning, keeping your brain going and active, um, like Pat Summit will, absolutely uh, it has an impact on the progression of this disease. It also has an impact on your mood and your attitude. Right. Depression can enhance memory loss, and it's frankly a depressing condition. So it the is. things you can do that elevate your internal sense of self your ability to function in the world, it, it can absolutely impact your quality of life in a significant way. We know more about that through science, through actual peer-reviewed scientific research about exercise, diet, brain fitness, those sorts of things, than we do about drugs that impact the system. There are 13 drugs in the last stages of clinical trial to treat Alzheimer's. Of those drugs, most of them look at slowing the progression by clearing 
beta amyloid, one of the hallmarks of this disease. There's not a drug out there right now that's in stage two clinical trial that looks like the cure or the prevention in a significant way that's getting the kind of reviews that would tell you that in the next year or two we're going to see that. So we have to take care of ourselves while we wait for science to catch up with the piece that's going to be the big the big help in the, this disease. The, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Well, right. it's, and certainly uh, intuitively as we listen to these better practices, uh, better lifestyles, that they're beneficial for any other kinds of disease that uh, affects people as we age. So it's, um, it, it addresses it for everybody. I want to, uh, for those who've just tuned in, uh, my guest is Jim McAleer, President and CEO of the Orange County Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. I wanted to also, there's two different things I want to make sure we cover before we close, is um, where uh, volunteers can get active and where people can sign up now for the upcoming walks. I noticed you've got your own teams all lined up. Um, There's the uh, Doheny State Beach Walk is October 15th. And on October 29th is the Anaheim Garden Walk. And Huntington Beach's Beach Walk is November 5th. And then Knott's Berry Farm is hosting a Saturday, November 12th. Uh, walk and at the district in Tustin is April. It's next year, April 21st. Um, so those are some of the walks that are going on. The symposium that the Alzheimer's Association uh, in part supports, along with many other organizations, that is slated for uh, its next Thursday at September 30th. Uh, that typically uh, closes out. I don't know that you have you any slots left over. Actually, the research conference is a week from Friday, and it is sold out, actually. It's sold out, so um, Friday. Yes, it is. However, one of the things that people are fascinated and interested in research, we have a research talk here at our offices on October 5th, which is about an hour and a half where we cover absolutely the very latest in research. Again, you can go to www.alz.org backslash OC to get all the dates for that and the walks. The walks are a great way to celebrate your loved one with the disease, past are still with us, and look a positive spin at a really difficult process. It is. It's amazing. And that, it comes up in the other events. I know there's not a Memories in the Making exhibit this year, but I remember going to see this art that has been uh, created by Alzheimer's patients at the at the, um, the adult daycare centers and other places. And uh, deeply affecting when people side-by-side side look at somebody's art with the with a, a, an, uh, a, an encapsulation, a, a, um, a summary written by the patient, the artist. Uh, it's that very special things come out, and invariably with the walks as well. Well, I, uh, Jim, I wanted you to give uh, listeners a direct pitch and insight about how they can become involved uh, as volunteers, because I know they, they want to know more, they want to be more engaged, they want to feel less helpless about um, the way this disease uh, processes in their loved ones. What are some of your favorite ways of having volunteers get started at the association? Absolutely. There are two very specific things people can do to help. One, if you are worried about this disease or know someone who's worried about this disease, get them to us. Have them go to www.alz.org backslash OC or call 1-800-272-3900. Getting people help is our first priority over anything else. 
The second thing, it takes money to do what we do. We don't charge anybody for anything uh, who is a loved one or is caring for somebody with this disease or who has this disease. So you can volunteer to support one of the walks that we have this fall or our visionary women's luncheon. We have the, uh, the mother and uh, Everyone Loves Raymond is our keynote speaker. So that luncheon's this Friday. There are a million different events, office support opportunities, in the community opportunities to spread our message. All you have to do is just check in with us, call us, and we'll give you so many opportunities to volunteer that it will make head spin, and one of them is right for you. Well, that's wonderful. And um, it's 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 great having you here with all that's going on. It's year-round. I think but maybe fall might be your, it's got to be your busiest time at the association with, with respect to events. I, I think absolutely so. In October and November around here, it's kind of like hunkering down in war season uh, with large events, with 2,000 people at each event, and we have six of them all told in the fall. We can use lots of hands and lots of help, everything from carrying water upstairs to sending thank you notes to making phone calls to showing up day of and um handing out flyers. There's all different levels of opportunities to volunteer and huge need. Each event that we do takes somewhere around 200 volunteers per event. So you can imagine we need quite a few people to come lend a hand. And their annual, so let's say somebody uh, misses the symposium a week from Friday, then they're they can look to the Alzheimer's website for uh, the, the annual, the subsequent um, uh, forum, as well as the uh, the research talk will be on October 5th. Where is that happening, Jim? The research talk is happening here at our offices in Irvine. Uh, the address is on our website at 530. Uh, and is a comprehensive look at current research. The symposium offered with UCI Mind and the Alzheimer Family Services is an annual event. And all you have to do is go to our website and get onto our email. Our email sends twice a month, and it'll keep you abreast of what's coming next, what the events are, where the volunteer, volunteer opportunities are, and a little bit about what the latest science is for that week. It changes so quickly, we have to stay on top of it. Well, I thank you for making yourself available today, Jim, with so much that's going on. I know you've been out traveling and with forums elsewhere, and now, as you said, you've got to hunker down and pull off all of these uh, events that are so, so helpful to the general public. And I thank you uh, today for coming on, and I wish you all the success. And we'll post all this on the podcast so that people get another look at who weren't able to come to it today. Claudia, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you so much, and all the best. And thank you to all of your staff that keep making it happen with such such authentic and knowing and earnest ways. I really appreciate it. Amen. Thank you. Oh, amen. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us in this portion. Uh, we'll get back in, in after a station break to talk with Karen Caparasso, an Irvine financial consultant with a special niche serving women. We'll be right back. I've ordered some rain for tomorrow The sky will be sunny but wet Right out of nowhere you're suddenly there And I say pardon me, haven't we met? Thank you for joining us today. Uh, our second guest is Karen Caparasso. Karen uh-huh. is with a, um, she has a background, 17 years in corporate accounting. Karen decided uh, after this, the stretch decided to pursue a career that combines 
a knowledge of accounting finance, and the ability to help people pursue their goals. A marital breakup is a confusing and emotionally devastating frightening financially and legally t- uh, overwhelming time of her life, of a woman's life, Karen helps the, her women clients by gathering relevant financial data and presenting them with different scenarios. As a certified divorce financial analyst, her expertise helps clients see if the financial proposals and divorce proceedings are really equitable and fair. Whereas an attorney specializes in providing legal advice, Karen helps establish a budget that is realistic, and one spouse can stay on track with and avoids future financial problems. She does much more with other clients, and we'll talk about that. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you, Claudia. I appreciate it. I'm so glad that you're available today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen is based right here in Irvine. And uh, Karen, I wanted you uh, to tell us, how did you arrive at this special niche of financial consulting? Okay. Thanks for asking. And how really it, it all came together was, Well, you had mentioned that I had a a background in accounting and finance, and I had always thought about getting into the area of doing, uh, you know, the financial component of divorce. And, you know, I kind of thought about it, but put it off for a while. And then one day, I was talking with a uh, realtor friend, and he happened to be explaining about uh, a, a house sale that he had done, and he made mention of boy, did that woman ever get taken advantage of. And I was really appalled and then come to find out, which he didn't know at that time, that this woman's daughter was my daughter's best friend. Uh I happened to know her. And so I felt so badly about what had happened and that really I was sort of disappointed in him is that, you know, that he didn't feel that he had you know, some duty to step up to the plate and, uh, you know, make, make mention of this. But anyway, that, that is what did get me started in the field of doing divorce financial analysts. That, that's what I am. There is a, a website, Divorce Financial Analyst, and, um, you know, you know, it's a very good field, and I feel very, very good about doing what I do, and it's really, honestly, just a passion. I love it. So has this this particular niche been out there for some time, or that are you helping create this as you're going along? Yeah, I think so. Um, it it actually did start around uh, maybe year 2000, and then I became involved with it in 2004. So it is fairly new, a fairly new field. I'm also um, a full service financial planner, a CFP, which I do that as well. But I do this in addition to that. And um, so it is a fairly new field. And every now and then you will read something in the newspaper about, uh, a, you know, fin- divorce financial analyst and their case and how they help the couple work through the financial component. And, and honestly, it's a lot less adversarial and it's a lot less um, expensive you know, from from going the litigation and attorney route. Well, that's what I was noticing at your website. So you provide a compar- comparatively low cost service for those settling a divorce. As you your partner, um, you consult with uh, closely. She's an attorney who handles the strictly legal questions, mm-hmm. and you handle the financial ones. And it looks it looks like a different price tag from what other even collaborative or other um, litigating um, proceedings in a divorce case. I think. 
so. I, I think it's less expensive. And uh, I, I actually do workshops with a woman named Shelley Moore. She is the uh, uh, emotional side of this. She does the. Uh, she's a, a family therapist. And then Lynn Diamond. She will do the legal document side of this. And and honestly, it is just. Uh, it's a lot cheaper to, to go this route. And you you just have to with a couple. Hopefully, you can keep them in check and not let them get adversarial because that's when everything just blows way out of control. And um, in the legal world, honestly, it always costs more and it takes a lot longer. So I just feel that 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 my service and the service that the you know the total the three of us women do provide is uh, really in the best interest of of the couple. And I'll have men coming in, husbands coming in, as well as women, but probably the majority of the of the um, couples or, you know, the spouse that does come in is the woman. Okay. Okay. If, now, is there such a thing, any kind of recurrent theme that you've observed with your clients and their financial literacy? Probably, probably for in, in the area of divorce, the common theme would be the women usually uh, have given up career assets. The the men traditionally are the ones who have the full-time job or the higher-paying job. Not that the women are not bringing something huge to the family, but typically the theme would be that the, the husband will bring in the monetary will be the monetary com- contributor to the unit, and then the woman will just take care of everything else. And I know because I'm a wife and a mother, and that is a lot. But the theme would be uh, that the woman has not built up career assets. The woman has not uh, really gotten to know her budget. Really, she doesn't know her balance sheet. She doesn't know what she owes and what she owns, and a lot of the financial pieces, investments, if there's life insurance, how things are titled, honestly. And and so that's what I try to bring to the table is just help them to discover this, this information. And and I know that they're, they're busy, certainly busy, taking care of other issues, um, you know, family issues, but I try to really bring them up to speed on the financial component. So before they ever sign any kind of marital agreement, I've gone over everything. I've gone over cash flows. I've gone over division of assets. I've looked at tax issues. I've looked at penalties as, uh, on any kind of investments. I've, I've looked at ordinary income tax rates, capital gains taxes, who will get what, um, just so that they really don't end up like this other woman, Melinda. Nope. Oh, we can't name names. Nope. So um, then... Let's say somebody, perhaps, that it, maybe it's too late. They haven't been able to work with someone as a certified divorce financial analyst. Are there services then you can help in the aftermath of maybe a bad, a bad dissolution process? Is that part of your, uh, <laughs> your part of your service you rendered? I like the word, Claudia, aftermath. because <laughs> That works financially. That's really true because there's just so many items going on at the same time. There's legal issues, there's emotional issues, there's financial issues. And so really you have to work, you can work through the legal issues and the emotional, but you have to live with the uh, financial. So yes, if they are um, 
you know, interested and it's a it's a good fit for the two of us. I work with a lot of clients afterwards because over the process, which it could be a year, it could be two years, we've really gotten to know each other and trust each other and, and know, um, you know, what the wants and the needs are of the relationship. So, yes, I do oftentimes continue working um, with the individual afterwards and just because I've already done the budget, I already know their spending habits. I already know a lot about what the people um, want, what they need, what their strengths and their weaknesses are. And so I'm able to follow up a lot easier on their behalf. If you've just joined us, my guest is Karen Caparasso, a financial consultant advisor here in Orange County, attending to improving the financial literacy of her clients, largely women, uh, those fresh from fresh out of high school all the way to others navigating financial challenges later in life. And this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on KUCI.org. Well, um, you've mentioned uh, there is a website for the field this for certified divorce financials can you repeat that i'll put that in the the podcast and then i want to mention how people can get a hold of you yeah thank you thank you very much it's called uh, institute of financial of i'm sorry institute of divorce financial analyst and my website is commonwealth oc for orange county .net. CommonwealthOC.net, mm-hmm. where we can find out, because they're up and coming. Are, uh, th- well, you've already got a, a month-long series of um, uh, workshops, which can also be picked up uh, this next Saturday afternoon. It'll be um, uh, posted on your website there. Um, Saturday, where you combine the previous four weeks of hourly seminars into one four-hour seminar here in Irvine. Mm-hmm. That's and correct. I notice you've kept the cost very reasonable. So it's something, there's something for a lot of the women out there, um, and men, but largely, as I say, it sounds like women are mm-hmm. your clientele. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, as I said, you can either take in the seminar this week, that um, the end of the week that wraps up all the other um, weekly seminars, or when will your next workshop be um, hosted? Okay. Um, thanks for asking, Claudia. And, uh, this Saturday, September 24th, is the, the four-part workshop all combined into one. And uh, it's basically it's the emotional and financial component of divorce. It's the reality check, rebuild, recover, and reinvent. And you can check that on my website. But our next, uh, our, our next uh, workshop will be held sometime at the end of October. And so it, it's excellent. It's uh, bring a friend for free. You can't go wrong. It's a lot of information. It's a lot. And really, the best part of it is women talk with each other, and they learn from each other, and it's really an excellent support group. And even if a person is not in the throes of divorce, if they're contemplating it or thinking about it, they might as well start getting their ducks, their financial ducks, in a row and know where they stand. Ah, it, pre-divorce counseling. Now, yeah, and it could be, Why honestly, not? Yeah, yeah, why not? And I, you know, find that sometimes women do come in and they're thinking about it. They're not happy, or something happened, and with, you know, with their husband. And I go over the financial component of what they are going to look like and what their standard of living is going to be after the divorce. And and uh, statistically, women will have a, such a huge reduction in their standard of living by fifty percent that oftentimes they say, "Oh well, it, you know what? He's not that bad after all." Oh. And they just stay the course, you know. Okay. So it's like, okay, so I feel that 
you know, it's helpful that way. Very good. But thank you, Claudia, for asking. Uh, well, indeed, we want to give everybody a chance to know how we can get certain things done. Well, Karen, you also help people establish retirement accounts, college accounts for their children or their grandchildren, and other financial goals. You want to talk to, um, are there workshops uh, that you're uh, arranging for those uh, those niches as well? Um, right now, um, I sort I have one in in, in the making. But not. But I, it would have to be checked back to my website. And, and and but you know you know for that kind of a, a workshop, you know pretty much people will just will call me and they'll come in and there's no pressure, there's no obligation, and we just sort of go over what what their goals are. And really, I'm I'm a I've been a goal setter since I was a kid, and um, I used to always save coins, put things away. The very the very first item I, I ever purchased was a, a pair of shoe skates. And I know I'm dating myself, but, but I, I'm able to save, and I really get a lot of enjoyment out of helping people save as well and plan goals. And I stay on them because imp- you, ha- you have to implement, but you can't just not do it because really, unless you, unless you implement your plan, it's honestly just a dream. You know, it's not going to come to fruition. So I really do help people, um, you know, meet all of their financial goals. In college, oh, and teens, I just wanted yes, to Yes, let's mention. talk about the teen workshops and teen uh, consultation that you do. Sure, thank you. Um, I belong to a women's group called WISE, and it stands for Women Investing in Security and Education. The website is wise-investors.org. And it's an excellent women's group, and that's where women can come up to speed financially as well. We do a lot of uh, workshops uh, for women and wise choices, and that is our teen program. And, in fact, I've been teaching that for some time, and we use uh, a a high school book, uh, and it just lets the teen girls know about budgets about wants versus needs. It, it asks them questions, or I'll ask them questions. Would you spend gift money differently than if you had earned this money from, you know, babysitting or some other some other uh, work? What do they say? Yeah. So usually they, they do conclude that gift money is like, whoa, that's a free-for-all. I'm going to buy whatever. I'm, I'm going to go and get a CD. I'm going to go to uh, Sephora and buy makeup and, and things like that. But if it's earned income, it's more of a treasure. And they really are much more careful with the way they spend that money. So it's very interesting. But I, I really, really enjoy helping the teen girls because in the state of California, in high school, it's not required that they learn about personal financial responsibility, unlike the state of um, Nevada. In Las Vegas, they are required to have personal financial classes before they graduate. And we don't do that here in California. Wow. So it's amazing. But, but yeah, they, I like to help them get off to a good start. And honestly, the teen girls, that, for me, flows through into the women who may end up in divorce. I mean, heck, it's in, in Orange County, it's 65% divorce rate. Nationwide, oh it's around 50%. But if, if I can help the girls get started taking care of finances, putting away money early, not waiting, just start 
and put them away whatever you can, as early as you can, even if it's $50 a month, whatever it is, um, it's the cost of waiting to save is really important. So, so I like to, I really, really enjoy helping them learn about personal financial responsibility to themselves and, you know, and then to others, not, you know, not to be a burden, um, but just to be able to take care of money and be comfortable talking about money and dealing with money. Unlike, you know, older generations, the women typically didn't deal with money or even talk about it. Well, uh, Karen, for uh, we have the website wise-investors.org. Do you have scheduled a workshop for teens? Um, right now it's in the works again. I've done one at Chapman University, held one over there. Mary Shelter, which actually is uh, teen girls with uh, babies already, and they were very, very excited to, uh, you know, to learn and become in- independent and uh, family American family housing. Uh, but but right now I don't have anything scheduled, but it will appear on our website, which is wise-investors.org, and that's a great website just to just to look. Um, and uh, become familiar with everything that's going on. In fact, we have a wonderful speaker um, in October, October 11th, and um, you know, it's just a great web a website. So check that if if the listeners could check uh, wise-investors.org for our Wise Choices program for the teen girls, and it's excellent, excellent. Well, that's and- something we can. Uh- have our daughters take a look at yeah. um, just as a just if they're going to sit in front of the screen, they might as well start sitting in front of it with some sort of a financial projection in mind. But exactly. I, well, Karen, I really appreciate your being on the program this morning. We'll have to wrap this up. Okay. This Thank is you, Karen Caparasso, a financial consultant advisor here in Orange County. She's given us an insight about some of the resources available to us, maybe a different way of going about various financial. Uh, uh, transactions that we're going about. And so uh, we thank you for making yourself available today and um, that folks, you can look up these websites. I'll put them on the podcast so everyone can find out how to get a hold of these resources for future planning, uh, acculturation, and all the above. So take care. Thanks for being on the show today, Karen. Thank you, Claudia. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are going to, um, before we head out of here, I want to Uh, acknowledge um, the up-and-coming event, the Celebrate National Public Lands Day with Back to Natives. Uh, uh, Reginald was with us uh, in the early summer, and he's going to um, be uh, hosting on this Saturday on the 24th of September from 9 until 12 at the Santiago Park Natural Preserve in Santa Ana. Uh, You go to his website, volunteer at backtonatives.org. Apparently, Reginald wants to make sure you RSVP because, remember, he talked about how sanitary he wants us to be when we go and deal with the natives. So thank you all for joining us today on Ask a Leader. Next week, I'm going to welcome students back with the host of What's Going On right here in our midst. Chef Richie's got something cooking at the uh, Anita Recreation Center and a whole lot more. So stay tuned, meanwhile, for George Hat with Senior George Rosales. ¶¶